0: Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film jurors. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. The lovely ladies of the Playdate podcast, Julia Marie Black and Katie Fitzpatrick, are joining me to vote not guilty as we talk about Sidney Lumet's 1957 timeless classic, 12 Angry Men. All right, we have a super special episode today, because if you noticed last week, I got to appear on the Playdate podcast talking about the 39 steps, and it was only fair to continue the crossover episode here. Today, we have Julia Marie Black and Katie Fitzpatrick. How are you guys today?
1: So good. Oh, we're doing great. This
2: is awesome. Thanks for having us.
0: Of course. So (laughs) this is technically the second time that uh, we've had you on because... uh, As you, as our listeners may have noticed, we did not have an episode come out two weeks ago. So, Thanks for being patient, but we recorded an episode on uh, the HBO film *Miss Firecracker* um, from the '80s, starring Helen Hunt and Mary Steenburgen and Tim Robbins. Uh, but unfortunately, Julia's audio cut out after 50 minutes, and Katie and I continued talking for another 40. Uh, so
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm the problem child. <laughs> it's,
0: <laughs> it's it's a true lost episode now, and since we didn't really want to uh, talk about that movie anymore because it sucked, (laughs) Uh, we decided to switch gears and talk about 12 Angry Men, because we wanted to continue on the, you know, uh, play and film crossover, and on our 39 Steps episode, Julia, I think you mentioned it, the cool thing about that show and that movie is it made you want to watch more classics, and, you know, you picked one of the great classics to talk about today, and it was your guys' first time seeing it.
1: Yeah. Yes, indeed. It made me very happy I don't know what it is maybe it's because we've we've now shot in black and white but I love watching movies in black and white now um yeah I just like never appreciated I guess when you strip away color you really get to look at what's there in a very um un um distracted way <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it, it does strip everything back and i think that was one of the reasons we're continuing in our series leading up to the release of our short film don't be a stranger julia is our lead actress and uh co-wrote the film and co-produced it uh with me as well uh so i i do agree that um you know the fact that filming that that project in black and white kind of gives you a new like outlook on other black and white films um 12 angry men is, uh, is a really special one uh, i've been uh, really itching to talk about this movie ever since I first saw it back. I uh, actually saw it for the first time recently um, in uh, in May of just this year, and it had been on my watch list forever. And, you know, I'm a sucker for movies that are plays and, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of dialogue. And it's, it was a really fun rewatch, too, because there's things about little character moments and choices between each juror that you pick up on. And there's, it's just loaded with stuff. We have a lot to talk about. Um, just some quick specs on the movie. It was um, directed by Sidney Lumet, uh, one of the great American filmmakers ever uh it was released in uh, 1957 based on the teleplay so we're not technically breaking the rules this is a movie that's based <laughs> on a play uh by reginald rose it has then been adapted um to um to this to the full-on stage um in uh in actual play form it stars henry fonda uh lj cobb ed Bagley, ej marshall jack warden um and you know a a bunch of of classic actors from uh, the golden era of the 50s and 60s um, and distributed by United Artists again in 1957 it is a clean cut 96 minutes which you don't see a lot anymore which was kind of um, you know very nice that you're this is a kind of an in and out movie Um, as I said before this is my second time seeing it but I want to know for you guys like before seeing it for the first time did either of you maybe see the play or did you have any like preconceived notions of the movie, and what was your first viewing like?
1: Um, I have a great deal of experience with this play, specifically before I saw the movie. Um, Oh, okay. I've seen 12 Angry Men read by 12 Angry Men. I've seen it read by 12 Angry Women, and I've also seen it read by an all-non-binary cast. So I'm going into this having seen three very different readings of it done before Um, and it was really cool to see you know what they changed what stayed the same um, how each of these characters made these jurors so iconic considering like you just know their numbers you know
2: I was in the reading that Julia did of 12 Angry Women um when it was done and i'd read the play probably a couple times before that um i I can't remember how many times but it's certainly a play that has piqued my interest enough to read more than once um i think i have i've spoken about this at least on our show which is that for somebody who majored in theater and who wants to be a teacher and hosts a podcast about plays i like am not a big reader uh-huh. I, I don't mind it, uh, but I just am a slow reader. It takes me a really long time. So, in order for me to read a play more than once, it has to really pique my interest. So, this is certainly a play that I've read over and over again. Um, but the first time that I watched this movie was actually um, not too long ago, it was a few days ago. And I cuddled up with a nice cup of coffee, a nice little blanket. Uh there's some rain falling outside. Watch this movie in black and white. Felt pretty great, frankly.
0: <laughs> That's like the perfect environment.
2: Yeah, uh, it really is. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah.
0: It's I, I was thinking about this today. It does seem like it's a it would be a play that lends itself to kind of, you know, bend the genders of the of the characters and yeah, doing it with all women or doing it with all um, you know, non-binary um people and I, I think that that, you know, it's it's not like I, I'm glad that it is open to that. It's not like the last five years where you try and do it with, um, you know, whoever. And then Jason Robert Brown's like, no, it has to be a man and a woman. And it's, yeah, 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 it's, yeah, yeah. It's whatever, cool.
2: Jason Robert Brown. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Whatever you say. Bud. Um, but like it's it's it sounds like, it, you know, there's a lot of depth that you could bring out with the characters depending on who. Um, who is playing in the relationships and how people react to one another, um, is, you know, it can be dependent on on the gender, but that speaks, I think, greatly to how um, well characterized each like juror is. And it's really exciting to see, you know, you obviously you have people, you know, like obviously Henry Fonda and Lee J Cobb, but they get to go at it after each other and playing, you know, two people on the opposite ends of, you know, of the aisle in this issue and how each person might be more like, I think he's guilty because of this reason. I think he's guilty because of this reason. Um, it's really fun to see. Um, and I, you know, we've done, you know, we did a whole series on this show about musical adaptations, um, and or a film adaptations of broadway musicals and but we i don't think if, if my memory serves me correctly we have not done a play this is the first play adaptation um that we're doing and you know there's there's a ton to choose from it was much easier to choose uh you know 39 steps than it is this there's so many other options you know there's you know a few good men there's uh uh like uh, Glengarry Glen Fences, Glenn Fences. Ross there's there's a ton of them out there
1: all of uh, the like Shakespeare mm-hmm. all <laughs> the Shakespeare yeah
0: and I think it's interesting that you know some people can kind of dismiss movies like this and say that oh it's just all dialogue and that it's you know it's just there's not a, enough action it's not but if you write it with interesting characters, it can be very cinematic. And I think this is like one of if, if not honestly the best example. I mean, this is considered one of the greatest movies ever made. This is on AFI's list. This is just like has it's in the, like the top 10 on uh, IMDb. It's considered one of the all time greats. And I think it has to do with like the directing and the performances and everything that we'll get into. What struck you guys most about this movie on your first viewing? What really stood out to you?
1: I mean, is it basic if I say Henry Fonda? Yeah, <laughs> He's just know. so good. Like, okay, I yeah. I was just so captivated by every choice that he made. Um, it was just so... And th- there was one shot in particular where I was like, ooh, that's a, that's a good shot. And it was when um, it was framed in such a way that all the men had their backs facing away from the camera and in the very center... Um, juror number three stood up and was was, you know, giving them all his his pitch as to why um, this this kid should be killed. Um, and that was just such a such a powerful, just a powerful frame and a powerful moment. And the same thing when the um, juror went on that racist tirade when they all stood up and turned their backs. Yeah. Like that was just mm-hmm. such a, oh so so good just per- a perfect use of silence mm-hmm.
0: yeah
2: yeah i definitely feel like there's a lot about this movie that was uh really quite impressive to watch and i think for me one of the biggest parts of it was um the honestly just the lack of switching frames um there's a lot that was done in one take of this it 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 feels very, um, they're just trying to not really do, maybe they were, you know, because this was 1957, but watching it back in 2021, um, it feels so simple. And I know that it's not, um, but that feeling of simplicity really makes you focus on what is at hand. And what is at hand here is a group of, of people really trying to, determine whether or not they should put another person to death. And that's like a really big thing. That's, it's not, you know, it's a huge issue and um, for them to really highlight that as the main focus here, which is, I think what you were alluding to a little bit earlier, Josh, um, you know, is, is really wonderful in the way that it was shot, which I found to be quite fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think that, I mean, you could probably say that about a lot, say this about a lot of plays is that at its essence or just drama in general, the premise itself is very simple. Okay, these guys, they're all in a room, they have to make a decision and they all don't agree on that decision, but they have to come to some consensus. Like if you boil it down and strip everything else away, that's essentially the premise that the drama is operating out of. And I think that might be why some people kind of get turned off by movies that are like basically just plays. Cause it's like, Oh, it's just a lot of talking. They're just yelling at each other. It's not going anywhere. But what what's so great is that they it's in a tight space. It's in one room, you know, they're not moving throughout the courthouse. They're not, um, you know, they're not in the, um, like, uh, like in the courtroom, they're just in this one like back room. It's fucking hot. It's super small and they're getting like, they're getting into it. And so the way that they're able to then just rely totally on the camera movements and the blocking of the actors, how they then break the case down into each individual element from the witnesses to the actual, uh, you know, to the, uh, the location to the actual kid himself They they make things very visual, like when they're blocking out, like, okay, if the old man walks from here to here and he has a limp, how long does it take? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, They they still manage to make it visual. And yeah, you're right. They do have a good variety of shots because there's long takes. There's good close ups. They know exactly when to cut like. I was just shocked at how well this this movie holds up. Like, yes, it's black and white, and it has these old actors from the fifties, so you could guess that it's from the fifties. But mm-hmm. honestly, you could make this movie today. Just don't remake it. Like, yeah, don't, don't don't do, do it. that. I but, wasn't an
1: invitation to remake yeah, it. Just but
0: you, you you put could. it in a theater
1: today. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, and it was. It's just wonderful to see.
2: Yeah, and it also is just. Um, you know, it really puts into perspective, like I, I just taking the seriousness of the things that happen around you and the power that you hold in certain situations. Cause you know, the very beginning of this film is really everybody being like, I got shit to do really, you know, Mm -hmm. everybody in the courtroom being like, I got stuff to do. We all know he's guilty. Just say that he's guilty and we can all go home, you know, and juror eight really is the one who's like, but what if he's not guilty though? Like, and then you just killed a man and you did it because what you want to, you want to go to a baseball game? Like what, what's the reason here? You know? And I think it's hard for me to say because I have been called to jury duty never like many times. I've never had to do anything with going to jury duty. I don't know, you know, really what that process looks like in 2021. I don't know um what that must feel like to spend a really long time working on something and then having to sit there in deliberation and trying to figure it out. But um but I I just part of me really feels like things like this still happen where you're just taking the easy route out and, uh, and it's a good reminder that like this isn't a movie and this is real life. I think, I think they yeah. did a really good job with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, you feel the stakes.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I,
0: I think you actually feel the stakes pretty early on. Like there's that shot of the kid's face where you're like, like immediately you're like, yeah, this kid didn't do it mm-hmm. like <laughs> pretty instantly. Yeah. You're like, yeah, he's not guilty. There's no way that he can be guilty. Um, but it's Honestly,
1: also... though, I, this is probably a really unpopular opinion. I kind of wish they hadn't shown us the kid's face at the beginning. Oh, really? Why? Mm-hmm. Because I think it's it's more, and I'm not saying that I'm better than the director who did this, clearly. This is a classic <laughs> movie. But if I were the one in the director's chair, I would not show our audience the face because I want them to be in the same place as the other 11 jurors when the scene starts. Like, I want them to be, you know, not viewing this person as a person. Like, I love the shot of the back of the kid's head. And I was hoping that that was what was going to be the only shot. And then we see the kid's face. And immediately I was on juror number eight's side. Whereas I kind of wish, like, it had been framed in such a way that we as the audience are in the position of everyone else. We don't know the kid. We don't know his story. All we're going on is this shadow of a person Mm -hmm. And it's Juror juror 8 that is the person who convinces us to view this as not just a picture on a screen, but a person. Right.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I think the other interesting thing that they kind of, to complicate it, is that once they get into the room and they start breaking down, like, why he is guilty, like, or why they think that he's guilty and, like, you know, uh, the woman, you know the woman heard her scream, I kill you. Or like, you know, I, I the, she saw him do it, you know? And then he saw, he heard, say, I kill you. Like everyone's reasoning for thinking that he's guilty makes sense.
1: Yeah, um, right.
0: And then Jury brings in all the other, you know, outside information that we need to kind of doubt that. But when you sit there and you think about like all the complications of the, you know, all the information that they have just been given, or at least that they're then giving to the audience, you're like, all right, I see why they think he's guilty. I, I don't, I don't blame them for for saying he's guilty. On, on the surface, that makes total sense. And each, you know, each revelation then becomes like, oh wow, okay, yeah, I didn't think about that. And also because each revelation becomes so personal to each juror and has something to do with them, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of the you know almost the the brilliance of the movie is that almost every single reasoning against. Uh, or, like, for the kid to be not guilty th- is then coming from, well, you just have this opinion because of something that's going on with you. And they, they, they're able to turn it on each juror, like, really well.
2: Yeah, and that's one of the brilliant parts about the way that this script is written, really, is that it's written vaguely enough that... um You don't really think about that, those details, like at the very end when she's talking about, um, they're talking about how the girl wasn't wearing her glasses. So she couldn't have seen, you know, this guy, you know, stabbing his father because she was getting ready for bed. So she wasn't wearing her glasses. But like, you know all of that is so vaguely written by them just talking about what time it was when that happened and it's not brought up again until far later. And at that point, that's when you really have to sit down and consider the evidence like they're doing. And I just think that's, it's brilliantly written, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Totally agree. Um, Before we head into the critical breakdown, I just want to ask a a theater question for y'all, because you both, like you said, have a clear relationship to the play, having read for it um, and at school. When you go into a movie that is an adaptation of a play... Do you have certain expectations, especially if it's one that you may have a relationship to? Do you go in with being like, "I hope they do this this way," I hope that this is included, or are you like, "This is the director's vision, or these these creatives' vision"? Let's just see where they take it. Like, what what do you have a certain mindset when you go into adaptations of plays?
2: I think it depends on the play for me, um, because a play like this. Um, is very similar to um, the play that we're going to be talking about on our upcoming uh, episode of playdate called The Wolves, in which none of these characters really has, uh, they all have a backstory and they all have their you know character development and whatnot, but they're all identified by like a number. Um, you know, and you don't really learn who everybody is right away. Um, and I think something like that is written in such a way that it almost takes every expectation I could have and like erases it. Um, And I sort of go in knowing the details and knowing the facts, but there there's a different way to interpret everything that they do and say based on what you choose to make of it. Um, And I think on the opposite hand, you know, rest in peace, Miss Firecracker. Um, (laughs) But something like something like Miss Firecracker, everything is like set up for you there. The plot, the story, the humor, like everything is like detail outlined for you. So when I see a film adaptation of something like that, where it really doesn't do the play justice, or it takes these creative liberties that um, I don't think were meant to be taken, it's not necessarily that they they shouldn't be. Um, I think that's what makes art fresh and creative. But um, it certainly is something that I have to I have to wrestle with in my head to, like, give it a fair, a fair chance, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Bouncing off of what Katie's saying, you know, there are some plays where either I'm super emotionally attached to them or I just, you know, think of them and hold them on a pedestal. Um, But even ones like Miss Firecracker, you know, sometimes there's the temptation to go into a movie like, gosh, I hope they do Popeye justice. Right. Um, I hope they cast this effectively. Whereas with this show, you know, because we just have the briefest of, um, you know, descriptions of these characters, you could really cast anybody in any role. And if they have the chops, they can pull it off. Um, For example, like I could cast Kate as juror number three or juror number eight, and they'd be two completely different performances. But I think she's fully capable of playing either of them. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> You're welcome. Love you. You're incredible. Oh, me too. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, there are certain plays that you go in and y- you know what you want to see. I don't feel that way about this one, partly because the script is flexible enough that you can. Um... I think, okay, okay, this is what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> With this play, the most important thing that I was hoping to see out of it was that. The information would be revealed in relatively the same order, and that the moments that hit big in the play, specifically the act breaks moments, um, would hit just as strong, even though the scene would continue after them. So, in the play, Act One ends with the first time that they they take a take a vote, and they get the um. Juror number eight abstains and someone else says not guilty. Mm -hmm. And so that that act ends with juror number three being like, well, who did it? Admit it. Who did it? Um, And that's that's how act one ends. And then act two ends my favorite way, which is with juror number three, um, you know, lunging at juror number eight and be like, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. And Mm -hmm. then it goes to black. Those are two really solid places to end a scene um, and to end an act. And so when I watched the film, I think the biggest thing I was looking for is, okay, are those beats going to hit with the same amount of intensity and force, even though the scene continues after and you don't get a blackout?
0: That, that makes that makes total sense and i think what's cool about this movie is they do a really good job of like use utilizing pauses and lighting changes to make it seem like this is the end of a scene because like it is like the whole movie is obviously one scene but there are moments when the lights kind of turn down there's another moment where a conversation stuffs and it starts to turn to an extra like it does feel like it's broken up into like at least segments you yeah know? yeah um and and to kind of go off of what you guys are saying, like for me, when I go into... I, I try and be as um, open-minded of adaptations as possible. I'm not usually one to be like, well, I mean, the books or like the book or the play or the whatever says this. So if it's not like this, it's wrong. You know, I don't... Yeah. I try and see like I'm open. <laughs> not that you guys are saying that, but I know people that do say that. Um, and so I try and go in with an open mind and also to be like... Um, what are they going to rely on? Because there's also certain limitations that um, you have with plays. Um, like, again, it's because most of it is dialogue and character heavy. Sometimes the action or like the pacing may dwindle in a film if, if done poorly. So I'm like, okay, what are they going to rely on? Are they going to rely totally on the dialogue? Are they going to rely on a certain actor um, or like the scenery or how are they going to do it? And it's really exciting to see like, you know, what stands out among the rest. But I think in terms of this movie, what's really cool is that everything feels like it's so perfectly in place. Like each actor, like perfectly um, brings out the character that they're playing and um, the way that they're so like crowded in this room and how they move the camera from like, you get all sides of the room. You know there's not really one side it does it doesn't stay on one side you get to see the entire room and even in the bathroom you get to know you know exactly where everything is um and again, the story itself is so is basically drama completely stripped down. And just to see it kind of unfold, you you can't help but be like, "All right, what what's next? We got we got ten more people to to convince. Like, how are we gonna do it? Like, it's- yeah." And <laughs> yeah.
2: I also love at the very end, like one of the last shots of the entire film is like a long pan of the table mm-hmm. where each juror like had an item, their specific item was sitting on the table. Um, you know, so like for juror number eight, it was the knife. It was the tissue for the juror who was. Sick, You know, like, it was every single, you know, juror and whatever it was that was related to them when they had either changed their mind or was, like, their 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 signature item thing yeah. was, like, left on that table just for that wide shot right after they all, you know, went in to, to give the not guilty verdict, which I just thought, again, like, it's something that I feel like is just – it wasn't – I feel like th- – things in movies today try a lot to utilize symbolism um and and rightfully so but i think making you wait here until the very end for those symbols to like understand the gravity of what that really meant um was so well done
0: they left it all out there that's for sure yeah they definitely Um, did all right well with that let's get into the critical breakdown To circle back to what you said, um, what you started with Julia and talk about Henry Fonda and just the performances in general. Um, you know, Henry Fonda, obviously, uh, a film icon and a legend. Um, movies like 12 Angry Men, Once Upon a Time in the West, On Golden Pond, Grapes of Wrath, How the West Was Won, The Oxblow Incident, The Longest Day, The Wrong Man, um, Ford Apache, The Tin Star. Like The man was like undeniably one of the all-time greats. And w- w- what's cool about seeing him here is he, I feel like, stands completely alone against all other actors of his time, not just in this movie, but among people like... Um, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, uh, you know, all all of those like greats from the golden era because he always carries this like uh, broken characteristic with him. Like Mm -hmm. you you know the idea, like when you see Cary Grant, you're just, you can't help but swoon over him, you know, you're just like, wow, okay, I'm like with you the entire way just because of how charismatic he is. Not that Henry Fonda isn't, but what was cool about Henry Fonda was that he, you looked at him and you were like, and maybe it's just like leftover stuff from the grapes of wrath throughout the rest of his career. But you're just like, wow, you have seen some shit, my friend. Please, please come in. It's cold outside. You know, you like you, yeah. you feel bad for him, and he's and it, he brings that in perfectly here because you can. He's the smartest guy in the room, and you know he is the leader, and he's the first guy to be like, I don't know. And what was smart is that you know in the beginning when he's when he raised his hand to say not guilty, he's totally just being like. Well, I don't know. And, you know, I I, it could be, you know, this person could be wrong or this could be incorrect. But you also kind of get the sense of like, no, he knows like he is certain, but he can't just totally be like you're all wrong. Like he has to slowly work through the process of getting everyone on his side um, and going through it as as democratically as possible. And it is fascinating to see like you absolutely you can't. Stop watching him. He's just so interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm almost a little embarrassed to say it, but this is the first thing I've ever seen him in. True. Um, mm-hmm. I know Marie black. I know, but here's the thing. I think it's a, f- to the benefit of this podcast because I can say, <laughs> you know, as someone who's <laughs> never seen him act before, that like this brokenness that Josh is talking about isn't just from prior performances. Like it is mm-hmm. truly like the, the, the thing that blew my mind about him and it's difficult to do with this character because when when tasked with playing the quote unquote smartest person in the room, oftentimes we take smart to equal assertive. Yes. And what I think he captures in this performance is the sensitivity and the subtlety of someone with a quiet understanding. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but there's something that's very inviting about his entire demeanor, even though he starts, you know, the scene, the, I say the scene, he starts the movie facing out the window, not really giving his, his like attention to anybody. He's just, you know, facing away from everybody deep in thought we can surmise. And there's something about the way that when he joins the table and he's facing everyone, he's being so um, open and inviting to them that it's really hard as an audience to hate him because he's giving so much of himself, even if he's keeping his information close to his chest at the beginning. And so by the end, I feel like we're all kind of that older juror that comes up to him and says, you know, what's your name? Because we we have grown to love him throughout the entire film. I I will say the only actor that I knew in this was um, I can't remember which number he was, but he was the um, he played Nick. In It's a Wonderful Life, he's the guy who's like, "Hey, get out of my bar!" That guy, and he oh, pl- I think oh. he played like juror number nine. What a fantastic movie that is! Oh, such a good movie. Listen
0: to our previous podcast episode on It's a Wonderful Life and how, <laughs> yeah, and how that movie, and how that movie made me ball my eyes out. Oh, that <laughs> oh
1: movie is so good! Fantastic. Talk about um, movies that hold up, like. Yeah, right. whoa.
2: Yeah. yeah, I to to jump right off of your point Julia, I think also, you know, the thing the thing about about Henry Fonda is like it's this, it's this lack of condescension. Yes. Um and anybody who knows me knows that being condescending is like my l- like end all be all pet peeve. I absolutely cannot stand it. Uh-huh. And I think when as to jump off your point Julia like to play that character of who is the smartest in the room and who knows that they're the smartest in the room or who knows that they're correct in this situation. It is very difficult to not fall into that trope of being condescending without even meaning it because mm-hmm. you're just in, and, and you can touch on this as an actor as well, you know, but just like you, you just, you know, the answer already. So it's, all you have to do is convince these other people. And the way to do that is by telling them they're wrong. And there's nothing that gets people more angry than being told that they're wrong.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's, what's great is he, is he listens to everybody. Yes. Like he's very clear, like almost that when that's when he's shot, when he's looking out the window before he comes to the table, he, he, he knows in that moment, he's like, yeah, I I don't know about this, but he is very clear that it's like, all right, this is going to, This is going to start something. I have to be I have to be prepared. Is this he's almost like talking himself through it. He has this kind of like without saying anything, you can tell that he's just like, all right, here we go. You know, let's see what happens. And yeah, he he listens to everybody and yeah, he doesn't say that they're wrong. He just asks. He just asks more questions. He's like, all right, well, if that's the case, then let's let's test it out. Like I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. Let's see what happens. And the, again, the fact that he tests out the um, the walking thing with the old man who had the stroke, yeah. and asks people like he gets other people invested who know about like the the L train going by and the the knife. That mm-hmm. shot of the knife when he stands up and whips the knife off and stamp stabs everybody's the table.
2: like where'd you get that? Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. literally
0: like one of the greatest like. It's it's like a money shot. Like it's yeah. so it's so good. It's so good.
1: I also just adore his dynamic with, I believe it's sure number five, the one who's quote unquote from the wrong side of the tracks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. First of all, that actor at first I thought he was Danny K and I got really excited because I, I'm the biggest Danny K fan in the world. <laughs> um, and then I realized it wasn't, but that's okay. He was still fantastic.
0: Um, he does, does kind of look like Danny K a little bit. He, well, his eyebrows it, are a little bit brighter or a little bit darker, but yeah, still.
1: Yeah. When they panned over him, I was like, is that, is that Danny K? But it wasn't, um, <laughs> But the dynamic that they share and the way that all of them are introduced, like, I I love that it lays the groundwork so that if you're paying attention, you know who's going to vote not mm-hmm. guilty, like, in what order. Like, right. if you're paying attention, you know the old man's going to be second. If you're paying attention, you know that number five's going to join and then the... um. In the script, he's described as like the foreigner, but you know the the um I think he's Russian in this version or or Czech. Mm-hmm.
0: I thought he was um, Czech, yeah, yeah,
1: Czech. Like I was trying to figure out by that actor's name, but um, these, you know, they plant just through body language and just through the way they react to certain lines, you can see who's going to be the first to switch and who's going to be the last to fall. Mm-hmm. Um. And what I found so interesting and what I love so much and why I think this holds up so well is that when um, that one juror goes on the racist tirade, even the last to fall still turns his back on him.
0: Mm mm-hmm. yeah. yeah.
1: And that yeah. to me holds up so well because I'm like, you know, even this guy who will excuse everything else will not excuse this racist yes. ass bullshit. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> And, yep. and, and they don't need to def, like to divulge into a greater argument right like yeah. just them turning their backs and like going in their own place like it's the fucking declaration of independence drawing like it's just <laughs> they're just like in their own like quarter and just like not saying anything the camera just widens out and you slowly the actor is so good i think it's it's oh it's ed Bagley. yeah um mm-hmm. he just how he's like slowly but surely like losing his words and isn't able to like even form like his argument because he realized he actually doesn't have one. It slowly just falls. And then he just, it's
1: just ignorance. It's yeah, yeah,
0: it's truly. And which is another good thing about this movie that holds up. There's a lot of really good themes in here. Like that's a great one. There's a, and we'll talk about it more when we get to analysis, but that, and when they, they do a lot of good stuff with like information with sensitivity
2: um, in male male Mm -hmm. identifying people,
0: Mm -hmm. ignorance, like, uh, it's just great. Um, I want to stay on the topic of actors just to point out a couple. Uh, juror number two is played by um, John Fiedler, who uh, many know is the voice of Piglet. Um, I knew from, I
1: recognized his yeah. voice. <laughs>
0: uh, and he, i tell you what, someone whose voice fits their face, this guy. Yeah. Um, but he's great. He's like the way that he is like assisting uh, Henry Fonda through most of it is very interesting. <laughs> Um, the, the older guy, Joseph Sweeney, who is the first one to change his vote, uh, is really great, especially when he, you know, is kind of a defending like the elderly when there's some, uh, like ableist like lines thrown out there, um, yeah and I, I want to bring, so like when you first watch this, I totally agree that the first thing you kind of focus on is Henry Fonda, because I mean, like he's the star of the the biggest star of the movie and is the one leading, you know, the whole charge and was a producer on the movie. Um, but this time around for me, it was Lee J Cobb, who was juror number three, oh. his performance Ooh. just knocked my socks off. Yeah. Lee J Cobb, obviously also another legendary actor from on the waterfront, fl- front, um, also how the West was one. And, um, most famously, probably um, in uh, The Exorcist, mm-hmm. and he was in Death of a Salesman on Broadway, and so
1: you know, not just, iconic at all. This guy no. he's never, no. never worked he's, a day in his he's, life. He's,
0: he's, he's, <laughs> a, yeah, he's a that guy, you know. And but, you know
1: <laughs> the relationship
2: between um, Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb with these characters. It reminded me, and maybe it's because it's a courtroom. Maybe it's just because it's two fantastic actors working off of each other, but it reminded me a lot of the 2014 movie, The Judge with Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Duvall um, because they have these. that uh-huh. movie. Oh my God. It's so good. And they have this relationship that is just so on every front, they disagree about like everything. Um, but, but they're, they both just have this chemistry as actors to like fight with each other and make it so, um, make you so engaged with it. And it's not just two actors screaming at each other. There's like a real relationship there, um, that they clearly have spent a lot of time working on. Um, and that obviously Lee Jacob and Henry Fonda had as well.
1: You know. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. funny because I had just watched um a Sorkin interview and I was telling Josh about it, but he uses that iconic last speech as an example of like how to write a good anti hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and he says this is probably my favorite quote about writing in existence, but he says an anti hero should constantly be making or constantly be making the plea to God as to why he should get into heaven. Yeah. And like it- Nice. that last speech you you can see that you can just see how purely and fervently he believes what he's saying and then you also see the moment where he breaks and says i was wrong not Mm -hmm. guilty like that just oh yeah so good so dramatically satisfying (laughs) yeah and Oh, go ahead. Go
0: ahead. I was just gonna say this is another reminder that we have not done any Sorkin property on this show, and it is a, what it is absolutely unacceptable given who I am. So that's we gotta- insane <laughs>
1: to me. You're the only other person I know who's watched the newsroom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna happen. It's gonna. We'll do like. There's gonna be like a three hour episode on the social network. Like it's gonna happen. Um, but just to continue on just quickly before Katie, I don't want to like make you lose your thought or anything. Oh no, um, don't worry what's about, it. about that last monologue. What's so good is that like all, well, all of these actors do really good just in their own form. Like they all, their looks and their um like stature all play to who their character is. And Lee J Cobb being this very clearly, like he is this kind of brooding figure, you know, he's like, He is the kind of the out of shape, in shape guy from the 50s, you know, but like he's got this like kind of gut. But you could tell he could kick your ass and he has seen a lot of stuff and his stuff with his son. They let you know really early on, which is actually something that I had forgotten that they had done. They had set up his son during the first long take, like in the beginning of how, you know, uh, his son, you know, they had a fight. They haven't spoken in two years and they kind of just, you know, um, put that away. And make it it's in the back of your head all the time when he's talking about kids and how these like, you know, you, you work, you work so hard. And then, you know, they these kids that deserve to be like, you know, put away or like, you know, sh- like all this stuff. And he's very clearly, you know, so, yeah, very, uh, very tempered and is constantly going to bat. But like what's cool is that he is not just yelling to yell, you know, yeah. and he yells quite a bit in this movie, but it's not just it's not overacting. Like, I think that this is such a, this puts to bed, like, all of the lies about, like, actors in movies from the pre-1970s. Yes, the style was different, but, like, watch this. These two in particular are such a good contrast to one another because Lee J. Cobb believes every single word that he says and is putting so much into it. Like, even just, like, moments where he, like, says to the, the one juror, the, um, the foreigner guy, where he was just like, uh, things are, you know got a little heated. You know, he doesn't even actually apologize. Like, he doesn't actually say I'm sorry. He's just like, ah, you know, I I know I got heated. Can you believe these guys? Right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it's such a good like character. And, and that's
2: and that's really the whole the whole thing about overacting is that you just have to believe what you're saying, and it's never overacting. Yeah, you know mm-hmm. what I mean. If it's coming any, from a grounded place, yeah, like any choice you choose to make with it, anything you choose to add to it is not overacted as long as it's real, you know, cause how can you say that your real emotion like isn't real? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so as long as it's grounded in real and your reality, I think that, I think that you're right. He's a great example of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't stress enough how great that, that last monologue is and just his, like he, he starts in one place and it just takes one picture to bring them all back down. Mm-hmm. Like just, Almost like you almost feel like like the power that he's giving that someone would then turn. Like that you'd be like, oh no, okay, now someone's gonna try and get back on his side, maybe. I don't know, like someone's gonna break, but they have all those really great shots after of like every individual face just like looking at him. Like it's it's yeah. also just interesting to have a movie where the jurors are under investigation in a way, like in and of themselves, and how their own personal biases or just experience in general can then be brought in. To affect the verdict, like the whole thing with the glasses at the end um, with juror number four, I I think is who it is. Um, And... Or just, you know, the fact of juror number five, who is the one who grew up in the in the slums. And then he's kind of the one early on to go to the side because everyone's like, oh, look, a kid from that side of the tracks, like, come on, like he he would definitely turn violent. And this guy's like, hey, fuck you. That's me. All right. I'm going I'm going to you know, I'm going over to non guilty team. And it's really cool how they how they frame that and how they do that.
1: I love how he doesn't go over right away, though. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's one of my favorite parts about that. I honestly dream role is probably during number five. Um, just because I think he's so so interesting. He is. Um, Yeah. But I think like what, what makes me love that character even more is even after that, he doesn't switch to not guilty right away. He, he makes that decision, decision on his own terms and not just because he's been like, basically bullied by these guys or insulted by these guys. Like he, he, decides non-guilty based on the argument that juror number eight has has presented um, which I think number one makes his case stronger. And then I think it's a perfect foil for, I, I, I'm going to call him hot dog guy. I know that's not what he is, but <laughs> he's the one who's like, oh, well, I got tickets to the baseball game, you know? Number, se- <laughs> number
0: seven, Jack Warden. Yeah. yeah,
1: Yes, and he's the one. Also <laughs> incredible in
0: this movie. Yeah. Also he's, great.
1: He's the person who's like, I'm going to switch to the not guilty side because everybody else is doing it. Not because I believe it, but because everyone else is doing it. And I feel like those two characters are, almost exact opposites of each other because I think at the beginning juror juror number five is is you know ple- voting guilty because he believes it whereas mm-hmm. um, hot dog guy just wants to get out of there <laughs> um, <dog guy. laughs> and, and, and when they make their decisions like he switches to not guilty because he firmly believes it and hot dog guy is like well I got tickets to the game want to wrap this up you know
0: yeah, you need you need one character in there to be completely indifferent. Yeah. And it's just like, "Oh, what is it?" What I love about Jack Warden in this is that he is he makes a really good choice of like always he's always standing when he's talking. Like he's he remains sitting and then when he actually tries to make a point, he stands up. Like yeah. He's always standing and walking around when he's actually trying to say something or add to the conversation, but every other time he's just sitting. And it's yeah. really cool because you can tell that he's not He's so easily swayed, like he doesn't have an actual sound opinion and, you know, he he, how he relates everything to sports. Like there's that one moment where he's like, oh, you think this guy, if he was in the ring with uh, he would uh..." look, the point is, and he sits back down and then goes back into like his thing. He very clearly doesn't really know what he thinks and is not, um. And and he, he he plays that so well. And yeah, he is the kind of stereotypical fifties character of just like, ah, you know, you know baseball. Yeah, baseball, <laughs> you know? And just I like, the, two tickets he, to the game. <laughs> he, he's ragging on the Baltimore fan. Yanks like, Mercy oh yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, the Baltimore Baltimore staple over here. He's got something to say. Like <laughs> in I feel like him and
1: the advertising guy are like the two most charactery of the characters. Mm. Like mm-hmm. I'm an av- it's funny because in the in the play the advertising guy says he's in advertising at least, like, five times. Yeah, he does. He's just like, well, see, I'm in advertising. And in advertising, (laughs) you kind of blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I I like that, you know, they did cut a a a chunk of dialogue Mm -hmm. out of the movie. Like, they definitely trimmed it. Um, Yeah. Either, I guess, what I mean to say is they added more when they adapted it to the stage. Um, Because I feel like there, there are good things about both I wouldn't say that one medium is like inherently better than the other I think I personally prefer the play in terms of the message at hand but I love the movie you know what I mean Mm -hmm. um but I think like you know what you get from seeing a, a filmed version of this is you get the reactions in a way that you don't on stage when, yes. you know, when it's on stage, you're in the room with them. You're experiencing it with them in the film. You get these cutaways where you get to see uh, my favorite that like really stuck in my head was, you know, after they did the vote, um, the foreman turns. So he's facing away from them, but we can see his face and we see how just distressed he is. Um, and like, that's a, that's a brilliant way of being like, okay, this, this, You know, this director clearly understood film language and understood how to make this the strongest version of this version of the piece. Whereas on stage, I love that you're in the room with them, that you get to experience those act breaks, that you feel the danger when juror number eight pulls out the knife and puts it on the... um, on the table, you feel the danger when juror number three looks like he's about to stab juror number eight in the chest. Like,
0: oh god, yeah.
1: <laughs> like you get to experience that on a very visceral level when you're in the theater with them. You don't get a chance to look away. Um, but in the film, I think you know they they used the tools at their disposal to showcase the things that you can't showcase on stage.
0: Yeah, I think that that brings I wanted to talk about the directing and cinematography because they're almost they're like another star of the movie in yeah. a way. Sidney Lumet is, you know, one of the like I said at the top, one of the great American filmmakers and has made movies in, other than other than this. He also made 12. Uh, he made Dog Day Afternoon, Network, uh, The Verdict, Prince of the City. Um Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Murder on the Orient Express, Serpico, Equus, like the man is is just that that rap sheet is just incredible. Network being honestly one of my like 30 favorite movies ever. I think he's is just does so well with dialogue like he manages to set actors in a way and like get really good relationships out of one another, even if they're like network can be kind of provocative in a way, but it's also like, it's very, he very clearly has a message that he wants to put out there and having all of these characters, like it seems like each move and each like gesture or like when a character gets up and walks away is, was a deliberate choice. Um, and he puts them in this space in such a way that, like, also works with the camera because, like you said, with the the close ups and how he gets like three people into one shot and you know utilizing shallow fo- focus more towards the end and how the focal length changes is is really fascinating because it makes that is the energy that this movie needs because if you just have close ups on each individual juror, it's not as exciting, but. When he can like have one person talking, like there's a shot towards the beginning when the foreman is talking, and the other two jurors on his uh, on his right are also in frame. Like the way that they're just looking at juror number eight and just kind of also listening, Mm. like that makes it so much more interesting than just a close up on uh, the foreman, which they obviously do later. But then even like when it's a close up of juror number um, nine, I think uh, whoever the older. Uh, the older guy is um, the, uh, Yeah, nine, jury number nine. And he's like looking directly into the camera like it's so close and he's like looking directly. And that's when, you know, like the story kind of changes. It's just such a great pairing and utilization of space and dialogue and actors. It's 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 masterful. Like it's so incredible to see that someone actually pulled it off.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it also I love one of my favorite shots in this whole movie was the like very last the last thing that you see of all of the different jurors walking out of the courthouse and like going their own ways right after you learn, you know, juror number eight's name and it just puts into the perspective this idea that all of these people are from different backgrounds and they don't know each other and they have their own separate lives and they do their 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 own people with all different jobs and they come from all different walks of life and you know they had an experience in that courtroom together that we only know because we're a fly on the wall but theoretically they're the only people who know um, you know, what that whole experience was like. Um, and you're able to get all of that from like a five second shot of them walking down some stairs.
1: Yeah. You know,
2: it's it's very cool.
1: I love that idea that they'll probably never see each other again. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I There's just something so satisfyingly dissatisfying about that ending because, you know... We, we don't know how many hypothetical jury rooms they've all been in in their lives, and we don't know how many they'll be in after this point, and we honestly don't know if anything they learned from that one day will stay with them.
0: That's true. Yeah, it is. I, I do love the idea that they don't see each other again, that this is just like, I think that adds to it that we also don't know their names, You know, and everyone's just kind of operating totally on their own morals and, um, you know, and beliefs and just clear understanding of the case. You get enough characterization where it can still move the story. And I mean, that, again, is just how good the actors are. But but also, like, I forgot that the movie also starts with you seeing a few of them kind of going into the room like um, it's like almost as if there's like a break or something during the during the court and you could see a couple of them like leaving the bathroom and going back into the, to the room. And then it cuts to the, the actual judge saying like, all right, now you men have to, you know, you must come to a unanimous uh, verdict. And that's really cool. Like it is setting, setting the scene really good, uh, really well. And yeah, the fact that they all just leave and just go off as, as almost as if nothing had happened, like they just go about, you know, their night and, you know, they'll end up getting up the next day. It it is really it is really interesting to think about, and I don't like. I feel like in today, this movie does well. Someone then does a fucking uh, prequel to juror number threes, and is like, ah, let's see the fight with his son. And right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, fuck you, no. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I think so-
2: that's what's so interesting about the the mediums here and the different mediums, I feel like um, you have the opportunity to really do a lot with it being done in the theater because there are so many options of ways that you can take this um, and different things that you can do with it. Um, but I also feel like... I don't know. I think there's just something about the this film um, that really just hits home... I feel like for the points that this is trying to make, and maybe it's because there are no theatrics quote unquote to get in the way because you know, there is, it is in black and white and it is, uh, there's not like a lot of quote unquote movie magic, you know, like there's no, there's no spectacle. Spectacle. Yeah. There's like nothing there um, for you to, to distract you from like what you're there to watch and I think sometimes, a lot of the times in theater, you have the opportunity to create this like spectacle effect with whatever you're doing, um, and and I love not having that. So like I'm fascinated to see what this play would look like in person because I've I've read through it with a group of people, but I've never I've never seen it in the theater as an audience member. Um, I would be so curious to know what that experience was like after experiencing it as a viewer in the film.
0: One other thing I, I wanted to say is that I think it's really, there's something about movies that take place on a hot day. Like this is, they, they say it's the hottest day of the year. You know, this movie does it, Dog Day Afternoon does it, Do, do the Right Thing does it. And just having all of these characters just like, Glistening and like soaking throughout this entire movie, yeah, um, kind of adds to the intensity of it. And oh, the well, other there thing is was...
2: currently a heat wave going on here,
0: yeah, in New York
2: City, and I think it, a lot of places. Mm-hmm. So I'm feeling that sweat. Yes, <laughs> I
0: feel it as well, <laughs> frankly. Um, and and the other thing I was going to say was that what also kind of adds to the intensity and make you really focus on what they're saying is that there's no music. Um, yes. other than yeah. at the at the very beginning and at the obviously at the the very end when they leave but you know there's no they don't add a lot of like crazy intense or uplifting music when people are arguing with one another they yeah. just rely totally on um you know the the words of each other and then once the rain starts to come in then you get kind of the background sound of you know the the water hitting the um hitting the window and that almost makes it more, you almost are more on edge because there's more chaos going on around and, and having that. And then when the one juror goes into his, you know, the prejudice tirade is just like, Oh wow. Okay. There's a lot going on and they do it so well. And it's cool to see how you can, how no music is used, you know, um yeah. to its advantage.
2: Case and point, uh the film Halloween. Yeah. That movie with Jamie Lee Curtis, my queen, um, my freaking queen. Um, I have never been more terrified watching a movie before than that that than that movie when I watched it for the very first time because of their use and utilization of silence. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. freaking terrifying. I don't know who ever decided that putting music in movies would be more suspenseful than silence. Um. I think in some cases it can certainly help. Um, but if you're looking for suspense in a situation, there's nothing more suspenseful than
1: nothing going on. Yeah. I politely disagree with you, but that's because I'm a okay. huge film score nerd.
2: Totally, um, yeah.
1: <laughs> tell me, believe me. I, I, I love
2: me a good film score. You mm-hmm. know, I was an instrumentalist my whole life. Yes, I think baby. film scores are f- freaking genius. They're, they're, they're incredible. I just think, um, I feel like in times where you're meant to be uncomfortable, the more realistic you can be to what that would look like in real life when there is no music going on um, is at least for me it makes me far more uncomfortable. In yeah. I think the way that it's meant to,
0: I agree. I I also think that the one of the best examples, if not the best example, is No Country for Old Men because there's like no music in that movie and it just makes it so much more eerie. And, yeah. Uh. So I mean, yeah, I love I love a good film score too but like when it's so hard to utilize silence effectively without it being boring or uninteresting. Right. right.
1: I will say, I I agree with you in this respect. I kind of actually wish they hadn't used any music at all in this, unless it was diegetic, Um, mainly because it shows up at the beginning and at the end. And in my playwright brain, it came on right where the theme stated happened in terms of, like, the beat breakdown. So it was like, here's the theme stated. And then later it was like, look at the theme. Um, During the time period this came out, like, they called a lot of um, film scores Mickey Mousing because it would just kind of, like, echo what was happening on screen, especially in, like, cartoons. Um, But I think, like, I would have rather had no music than have just the very sparse score that we did get Um, Mm. because, and I I think because Henry Fonda had a very grounded performance, like this didn't happen, but I think had you had a worse actor, that scene and that moment where he's speaking and the music comes up underneath would feel very (laughs) self-important. Um, but luckily you've Henry Fonda at the wheel and it didn't feel that way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just think it would be weird if it, if the ending was, <clears throat> if just the way that the timing of the last shot, like you were talking about, Katie, of the, of the table and then, you know, melded with them leaving, feels, a, would be a little strange timing-wise without the music.
1: Oh, no, um, I think it's fine in that moment to have the music. I'm just saying when anyone's talking... Mm-hmm. Um, because it did start with music at the beginning too when it did the title sequence and uh, I yeah, feel like anything right. where you know it's either beginning things or wrapping up things like I think it makes sense to use it but it was more that in that particular moment when he's you know speaking about but it is possible and the music came up underneath I think like it didn't it wasn't necessary in that particular part
0: I see what you mean I see what you mean Um. <clears throat> Do you guys have any other critical stuff you want to talk about, or can we move on to analysis? Let's
1: analyze. analyze.
0: Let's go to analyze this. So we talked about, we mentioned the prejudice theme, that, that whole shot and that whole tirade that that guy goes on feels very Um, present and it doesn't date itself really at all. I think what's great about this movie is that it really doesn't date itself. Like you can do this without technology. You can do it without um, like cell phones or anything like that. And the themes would still, still feel like they make sense, you know? Yeah. Um, And the one that really stuck out to me, the prejudice one is, is a big thing. I mean, there's that, that funny joke where he's like, um, you know, it, you know he's a, he's an ignorant slum. He don't he don't know good English. He's like he doesn't know good English. Like that's a good <laughs>
1: great line.
0: Great line. You know it's a it's a gr- it's a good like themes like that like that is like good a good like theme statement right there. But it's the also a really good st-
1: character builder.
2: You know, like it's a good line to to showcase what that who that character really is by correcting his
1: grammar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I yeah. love that character. I love that guy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and but the other thing that stuck out to me more is just like I think I don't know if it's necessarily one that's specifically stated, um, but just how this whole case is based off of, just based around information and how information is given to us, and you need the full story and how there can be misinformation. It felt, you know, very you know, speaks loud in 2021, I think. Yeah. Um, Because there's, you know, there's so many moments where Lee J. Cobb is like trying to stop the information and keep, like, because ignorance is a bit, like, not only just prejudice, but also just ignorance to facts. Mm -hmm. You know, that is a very clear issue throughout most of this movie. And especially with, yeah, with Lee J. Cobb's character and how he's like, You know, you don't need this. This is ridiculous. You know, we we, there's no need to be this thorough. Like he's like really trying to go against it. Yeah. And, you know, the discourse there feels it's I mean, it's much angrier now and it's much more. uh, uh, What's the like damaging? I mean, not that this isn't damaging because they're putting, you know, they would be putting a man to death. But like this is nowadays, it's just as, you know, we have all this bad information and conspiracy theories about the vaccine and just about you know just everyday things and so seeing how people just totally like cut out (coughs) evidence and I mean it's different here a little bit just because you as the audience member are in are expected to be on the side of not guilty so you're supposed to believe what they're saying but what they're saying also makes sense and the fact that there are jurors who just completely are like nope can't be and after all of this, I'm still not going to, you know, I'm still not going to say not guilty. Well, it's, it's yeah.
2: like amazing how some people really can look at, um, you know, a situation or a fact, let's say, like a fact dead in the eye and say, my opinion is that you are not true. And I'm entitled <laughs> to my opinion. Yeah. And you're like, that, that's not how that works, though. <laughs> like, like if I tell you, you know, that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Like there is no, you can't, you can, your opinion can't be that that's incorrect. Well, actually. (laughs) I guess that's just not, that's not how, that's not how an opinion works. And I think that's what is uh, something that's very infuriating about this story is that it still rings so true to where we are right now and maybe it wouldn't have rang so true back in 2012 but in current day 2021 between politics global warming racism sexism, the vaccines literally i couldn't help
1: but think about the vaccines with
2: this of course well you know my 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 family you know has been on the front lines of this pandemic since the very beginning and And they tell me all these stories of these people like on their deathbed, like on the ventilator, getting ready to pull the plug that the last things that they say are like, I just didn't believe that this was true. I thought it was fake. Like they're they're sitting there like literally about to die. And some of them still think it's fake. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, It's absolutely mind boggling to me. It's mind boggling. I don't get it.
1: Yeah. I remember honestly, like I was, I was working at a um, restaurant before I moved and it was the day I came back from just having had COVID and having to be out for my, for my two and a half weeks. And I come back in and I'm seating this guy and this guy comes up and he's paying his bill and he goes, you know, this whole, this whole mass thing is so stupid. I mean, I like, I, I just, you know, I think this is real. I just don't think it's as bad as they're saying. And I literally was like, Oh, it's bad. I just had it. <laughs> Wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy.
0: Here's this this is the war, this is the more harmful pandemic that's going on bad small talk like no yeah. one knows how to make small talk with people anymore. so did you
2: get your vaccine yet
1: yeah. what kind just, did you get
0: just pay your bill and get out of my face just yeah right yeah
1: <laughs> and it's always the spitters too it's always the ones who have their mask down and are just spitting. i swear like oh my god it it was like i i can't even tell you how many juror number threes i sat in
2: my, yeah in my swapped, time at a restaurant. Yeah. Oh my Who God. are you? Are you juror number eight or are you juror number three? If you're juror number three, let's rethink some things.
0: Yeah. <laughs> there's but there's so many good lines in the movie to bring it back to the movie, um, <laughs> that like really kind of speak to because they don't go off and do like a monologue of like, you know, this is all about information, but like there's a good there's one, you know, exchange between two and eight where two says it's hard to put into words. I just think he's guilty. I thought it was obvious from the word go. Nobody proved otherwise. And juror eight says, nobody has to prove otherwise. The burden of proof is on the prosecution. The defendant doesn't even have to open his mouth. That's in the constitution. Like, yeah, again, like just stripped down without any technology or like, it's all, this is that now all moved to chat rooms of like, of conspiracy theories and QAnon and just misinformation. And it's, and it's it's shocking to think like I don't know I think one of the great things about watching some of these classic movies and I'm just I, my takeaway from so many of them especially this one I was just like God man people were smarter back then like, <laughs> like people were so articulate and like good at like bringing out their point and some of them actually do make good points specifically with the actual information of the case like I said at the beginning when you're listening to them you're like oh I see why you're voting guilty okay I can see how this information would add to you be like guilty. I get that, but like the fact that they like just are constantly trying to bring out all of this other like stuff that no one even like actually considers. They'll just they they feel so safe being in their own bubble and wanting to not actually face the fact that they're wrong. And because they've they've dug their like the thing with juror number eight is he's already dug his heels in so much that he doesn't want to get them out. And yes, his whole reasoning for saying guilty is completely personal. And it's honestly amazing, like how he breaks down and you put it together that that's the reason why he's so held up about this. And they ask him about why are you taking this so personally? But like just the, you know, The ignorance is bliss mentality of he will not back down and just being like, I've already committed to this mindset. I'm not letting it go.
2: Well, it's embarrassing otherwise. Yes. You know, it's like it's like this fear of embarrassment where people are like, well, if if I'm wrong, what am I going to do? Admit that I was wrong. Yeah. Everybody's going to laugh at me. <laughs> you know, it's like this idea of not wanting to, to back down from your opinion for fear of how it's going to be received, you know. And I feel yeah. like that's the stigma that at least our generation is really trying to like – get out of people's heads that, like, it's okay to, like, change your mind about things when you have new information given yeah. to you, when you've opened yourself to the possibility of, of learning something new or being open to hearing other points of you. And I think that a lot of people who say that in our generation are equally as, as closed-minded, just in a different way. Um, but I think that's the, the thing that we all, as humans, like, really need to work on,
1: you know? Yeah. So in essence, Katie, you're saying this is a story of pride and prejudice. Get out.
0: (laughs) Oh Oh boy.
1: Honestly, though, like I I really appreciate the attention to detail about the lawyer and how the lawyer may not have been doing a good job, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how you know, they've been put in this situation where they have been able to do more in an hour for this kid's case than the lawyer did over what we can assume was days. And what blows my mind about this whole thing, and I think is the most harrowing part, like the scary part about why this movie holds up, is how trivial it is for people to just throw away a life.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And how, like, that whole, like, F-you-got-mine attitude of, like, if it doesn't affect me, I don't care. And Yeah, I correct. Especially right now, we're seeing that over and over and over again between, you know, how Native Americans are being treated in this country. How, you know, people are viewing COVID and the vaccine. And, like, the fact that children are now dying. Mm-hmm. And have been dying. And people still don't care. (laughs) And with this case, I think like it was a very smart choice that this person was 18 years old. This is an 18 year old person who they are so willing at the beginning of this session to be like, yeah, he can die.
0: Yeah. Come on. I got I got stuff to do. Yeah.
1: And I love that the argument of juror number eight is not even that. They should vote not guilty because they believe without a shadow of a doubt that he's not guilty, but that they don't believe without a shadow shadow of a doubt that he is guilty. Because there is even the slimmest possibility that they could be putting away an innocent kid. Right. And I think that's why I appreciate his argument so much more than if he was just like, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he's not guilty and I can prove it. What he's saying is... We shouldn't be so willing to throw away a child's life based on a knife and two vague, quote unquote, first-hand accounts. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And, and the, when I was watching this this time, it, what kept sticking out in my mind was the Stephen Avery case, wh- which was the basis of making a murderer, um, and how you know the you know judicial system of um, minnewaska i think is where that case takes place um is just like completely failed him and was against him from the start and uh you know basically ruined his life twice and um it's and i think one i think someone i think a more cynical person would could look at this movie and enjoy it but also say that what hasn't held up is that these men end up having good consciences and uh you know, tell them to speak honorably and go for what is right rather than what they think, um, than what they decided before they went into the juror room. You know, yeah, uh, to deliberate. But yeah, you know, I and yes, it, it's sure. If you're cynical like that, I, I get what you're saying. But I think it's, I like the hopeful idea that like yes, these these were just random people who ended up doing the right thing, um, and. Would it happen the same today? I don't know. You know, you could play the what if game all you want, but I'm sure someone out there could be, you know, could be like, no, it wouldn't. Or someone could be like, yes, it would. But I think that's what makes the story itself so compelling is not that it's naive to be like, this is what, uh, would happen like this is exactly how this would happen. I don't think that's the case. I think it's hopeful or that it's powerful because it's saying this is what should happen. Yeah, like this is exactly how this hour and a half in these men's lives should have gone. And they came to the right decision, like they did the right thing, but they also took the necessary steps to get there. And you're right, it is fascinating how if they came to the guilty verdict, everyone would have failed that kid, like they failed him. His lawyer failed him. Uh, the the witnesses, the judge, like they all failed him. But here, these men just stripped it all down in an hour and a half and managed to come to the right decision. And that's what makes it so powerful. And I, I don't necessarily think, um, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself a cynical person. I tend to be hopeful and optimistic. And again, I don't know if this exact situation would happen in, in real life. I've never been in a uh. You know I've never been on a jury before um but it's powerful that this is the ending that it comes to it's also not schmaltzy like it's not uplifting like we are heroes we did the right thing like these guys yeah. leave and they're like like they all leave and they're like shit I am like beat like they got yeah. their shit kicked out of them you know yeah. and that makes it so much more interesting
2: it sure does yeah sh- it sure does it makes it way more um exciting to watch frankly <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, it is that time of the episode. We have reached the end. Before we go, I want each of you to tell me why you love this movie and how it adds to your love of movies. So, um, Katie, let's start with you.
2: I love this movie um, because, well, a couple of reasons. There are very few movies um from this time period that i enjoy watching and i think it's just because as we discussed in our last uh dead episode of of you know (laughs) miss firecracker r.i.p that i I have a really hard time watching things and not and focusing on anything but the acting um and especially for movies that were created um a longer time ago, you know, this was 57. So, I mean, it wasn't crazy, crazy long ago, but um, that's certainly not contemporary. Um, I tend to focus so much on their acting. And because acting styles have changed so much from then to now, um, it's hard for me to view that in a non judgmental lens. And this movie really helped me break that stigma in my own head, um, which was really something I feel like I needed. Um, And I think that this has made me love movies because it it also just kind of shows me that I can have a wide range of things that I find fascinating to watch and they don't have to all fall under this category that I've created for myself. So that is why I love movies.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Thank you. Julia?
1: Um. So, as you said at the beginning of the episode, this did fulfill my call to action of watching more um old movies, which was great. Um, and I think what what i what I love, especially about movies from this era, um, is that i I surprise myself when I watch them with how good they are. Um, Like I remember the first time I ever saw Sunset Boulevard and it it had just like popped up on Netflix. And by the end of it, I was just in tears. And it was one of the most captivating things I had ever seen. And I, I didn't know that that was possible before I saw that film.
0: Yeah, that movie's unbelievable.
1: It's so good. And I feel like this and 39 Steps and Sunset Boulevard, like movies like that. And it's a wonderful life. Those films are just so captivating and I think the beautiful part about it is that they're a time capsule of Mm -hmm. maybe a different worldview or you know different actors that were really big back then but we may not know them now and the beautiful thing is we can watch it now and still get something out of it and I think that's really cool
0: yeah I totally agree there is a great euphoric feeling when you watch a classic and at the end you're just like I get it yeah, like, I get it. No. To- to- totally know why this is on the list of the lists and people love it. Um, and, you know, when you have fun, you know, yourself And and you're right, like with these movies, I think it's always important for us to, you know, continue to helm them as such or to study them, at least because, you know, like you said, we get a glimpse into the past and understanding how movies were made and how things are different now. Like all this stuff, like recently, I don't mean to like, get on a soapbox or just go crazy but like <laughs> i've seen i've heard a lot of comments being going like going through film school of like why we teach certain films and that they may be problematic or whatever and it's like okay maybe but we could if, if that's the case then we're learning something from them and we know how to go forward we shouldn't cut them out yeah um and you know we should be watching them and we should be understanding them
2: we just shouldn't and, do them again <laughs> Yeah.
0: Right, yeah we should learn from them we should be right. like okay this is how we're going to do how we're going to do this differently moving forward. But the ideas and the um, humanity in this movie is totally timeless. It's yeah. totally realistic to today. I've also talked in the show to wrap this up. I've talked in the show a lot about, you know, just my love of theater and like any time a movie can effectively do theater on screen and make it worth it is really exciting to me like I've spoken on here my love of the film Birdman um, other you know you know other you know play type movies will do a few good men on here at some point Uh, but and also just obviously my love of dialogue there's some incredible dialogue throughout this but what I really love is that it also just speaks to the essence of theater this movie is that like when characters act purely on their ideas and their Um, or their ideals, rather, and their morals and what they believe. Like, that is what this movie is because you don't really get any good sense of who these characters are as fully individual people until each of them act on this is what I believe because you don't have any names. You don't really have any like understanding of them outside of this moment because of how contained it is. And when you do that, you can tell that they have have stuff. They have had stuff happen to them in the past, but once they're here, we can only guess. And it become and it's fun that way. But it's also you get such a good glimpse into who they are through what they believe, and that is all that they base it off of, and that makes them an individual character. And they grow, and you can you just get more information as the play goes on and it's so exciting to see that because that just means smart writing and also good characters and like good actors i i guess and it's different it's one thing to when you watch a classic and you're like this i get why people love this and it's another thing to be like this holds up yeah, like this is absolutely this is something that is always going to be loved and is like i can't imagine a world where there's going to be a bunch of re- revisionist think pieces of like, was 12 Angry Men actually that good? Like, <laughs> fuck <laughs> you. Yeah. Yes, it was. And it will always be this good. <laughs>
1: yeah. I honestly hope that, you know, either people watch this film and are encouraged to either watch the play or make it happen in their, in their communities or vice versa. You know, they see the player, read the play and they watch the film. Cause I think both, are super valid retellings of this story and they both have their merits and I think you can you can get so much from this story that you don't necessarily get with other stage to screen adaptations or vice versa um and I think that's the mark of a of a really good story is if it can transfer mediums and it still works in some way shape or form that's really cool yeah I agree
0: couldn't have said it better myself thank you both so much for coming on the show this
1: is awesome thank you for having us again
0: (laughs) we had to write we had to hope i i hope that this whole episode i hope this episode actually makes it out
2: you know i know (laughs) fingers crossed it was it was certainly a lot more positive than miss f oh yeah Yeah. miss f miss
0: (laughs) f (laughs) like a bad substitute maybe someday we'll
1: do we'll (laughs) do a revisiting of that I don't and think people we should. should. <laughs> I would be totally think,
0: fine never watching that movie. Yeah, again. I
2: think we're all set.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, but definitely watch 12 Angry Men again. Yeah, definitely Thank watch
2: you. it. <laughs>
0: That does it for this episode of Frankly I Love Movies. It was great to have Julia and Katie back on. If you want more Frankly I Love Movies content, please go check out our social media pages on Facebook, Frankly I Love Movies, on Twitter, Frankly Podcast, on Instagram, Frankly Podcast, and you can check me out on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. This episode is in a series of episodes leading up to the release of our brand new short film, Don't Be a Stranger, a horror thriller short film that we have been working on for the past six months, and we're super excited to be releasing it to you guys very soon. If you want to check out our social media pages on the movie, you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram, Don't Be A Stranger Movie, and our website, don'tbeastrangermovie.com, where you can get a bunch of extras like behind-the-scenes footage, character bios, cast and crew bios, and release updates. And finally, tune in in two weeks when Steph Workman, our very lovely makeup and special effects artist, joins us to talk about the lovely and one and only Nicolas Cage as we dissect one of his newer releases, Willy's Wonderland. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies.